Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Friday's subpoena issued to Donald Trump by the House January 6th Committee and assess what Trump's next move might be, as well as discuss the sentencing of Stephen Bannon to four months in jail for defying a congressional subpoena to testify before the House January 6th Committee. Joining us is Dennis Aftergut, a former federal prosecutor and chief assistant city attorney in San Francisco who has won cases of significance in the United States Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court. He currently focuses on affirmative litigation and defending cases involving civil rights and democratic norms under attack, and we will discuss his article at Slate, Why the Bannon Prison Sentence and Trump's January 6th Subpoena Matter. Then we'll examine the Senate race in Ohio, which is in many ways a referendum on the direction the Democratic Party has taken in the recent decades away from support for unions and working Americans, particularly in the industrial Midwest, and speak with Alec McGillis, who covers politics and government for ProPublica. He previously reported for The New Republic, The Washington Post and The Baltimore Sun, and is the author of Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America, and we will discuss his article at the New York Times, Tim Ryan is Winning the War for the Soul of the Democratic Party. Then finally, we'll look further into our political divide and assess the role of education in this country, in which the Democrats are now losing non-college educated whites by a two-to-one margin, while securing 60% of the college educated vote as Trump and the Republicans exploit the values divide between educated professionals they portray as liberal elitists and white working people. Joining us is Eric Levitz, who writes for New York Magazine's Daily Intelligencer, and we'll discuss his latest article, How the Diploma Divide is Remaking American Politics. Education is at the heart of this country's many divisions. And joining us now is Dennis Aftergut, who is a former federal prosecutor and the chief assistant city attorney in San Francisco, who has won cases of significance in the United States Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court. He currently focuses on affirmative litigation and defending cases involving civil rights and democratic norms under attack. And he has an article at NBC News, Special Counsel John Durham's Failure Belongs to William Barr. And another article at Slate, Why the Bannon Prison Sentence and Trump's January the 6th Subpoena Matter. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dennis Aftergood. Thank you for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Dennis. And since you're a former federal prosecutor, my understanding is that the subpoena that the House Select Committee investigating January the 6th sent to Trump and his lawyers on Friday is what's called in the trade a speaking indictment. Well, that's a new one on me, Ian. Uh, a speaking indictment generally refers to to what John Durham did uh, with uh, Igor Danchenko. I, I don't know if you want to get into that, but no, this is just, a subpoena is a, an order to appear. You could call the letter that was written a kind of speaking subpoena. I think that may be what you're referring to. That's what to. I was referring to, yeah. Yes, the letter, you know, the letter lays out the case why uh, Donald Trump needs to testify as a central, as the central character in the January 6th insurrection. And it feels like that letter has Jamie Raskin's fingerprints on it. Just my sense. 
Yeah, um, I, I always left to the FBI the uh, fingerprint expertise. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but we know that Trump doesn't read. So did the somebody read it to him? I mean, if it was designed because it was very cogent, it laid out the entire, put him at the center of a coup attempt that's unprecedented in American history. I mean, they didn't pull their punches. You've made a very good point, Ian. The members of this committee are extraordinarily experienced and skillful. There are a number of very capable lawyers on it, including former federal prosecutor Adam Schiff. You mentioned constitutional law professor Jamie Raskin. Um, the uh, idea of Trump actually testifying, which I don't believe is going to happen, um, must have them salivating at the prospect of cross-examining him. Well, when you say it's not likely, I mean, his lawyers, apparently, in the case of of the Mueller inquiry, talked him out of it because they knew he'd be a catastrophe. He likes the limelight. So is there any outside possibility that he could overrule the wiser counsel of his lawyers because he, he wants to get up there on live television and do his act? Again, you make a good point. He likes the limelight. And when he offered to testify, but only if in public, that was the part of him speaking that loves the limelight and that thought this would be an opportunity for free television across the country to get across uh, his message of election denial and so on and so forth. But Ian, I don't really believe that it was Trump's lawyers who talked him out of testifying in front of Bob Mueller or who will be needed to talk him out of testifying now. All you need to do is look at the 450 times that Trump invoked the Fifth Amendment when he was deposed in front of the uh, Attorney General of New York, Letitia James. He doesn't want to get anywhere near the testimony. So then let's talk about, Dennis, after get the most likely strategy on the part of Trump, and it's the tried and true strategy of delay, 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 delay. I mean, isn't that what he's going to do, appeal? And my understanding is that the subpoena he got from the House Select Committee investigating January the 6th, he's supposed to testify on November the 14th. Is that right? I think it was November the 4th, Fourth. Ian. It was, yeah. yeah. I noticed that in, in the article, but I read somewhere else it was the 14th. I'm surprised that they wanted him before the election, which would be impactful if they did. But he's not going to show up either way, whether it's the 4th or the 14th. I, I, I don't believe so. But I do believe that they, in theory, would want him to appear before the election because after the election... I think the likelihood is the message is going to be they're going out of business. And you're absolutely right. Um, delay has always been Trump's best friend forever because they didn't subpoena him until uh, October. Uh, they only have three months in their mandate uh, to remain in business. So it won't be hard for him to delay. There's one other thing that um, has been um, uh, part of his repertoire that is showing up here too. And that is, you know, he, he made that offer to testify in public because 
in all likelihood, they're going to refuse it. And he was looking for bragging rights to say, see, I offered to testify. Uh, his narrative would be, and um, they didn't want to hear from me. Uh, so they, they need to figure out how they're going to respond to that to take that narrative away from him. So if the Republicans take the House in this upcoming election on November the 8th, and in addition to that, there's an expectation that at some point soon Trump will announce that he's running for president again. Just with the first blow against the committee, a Republican take over the House and they vowed to kill the committee in its tracks. How much do you think that's going to affect the general weight of what's happening here in terms of justice for a man who all his professional business life has been one step ahead of the sheriff and all his political life has been one step ahead of the sheriff? Trump not testifying, the committee going out of business, those are all baked into the cake, I believe, Ian. Uh, those have been expected. That, that would be expected for a long time. Look, the committee has done the job it set out to do. And that was to put before the American people the evidence of his role in the insurrection and in the events leading up to the insurrection, including the uh, so-called bloodless coup, his attempt to persuade Mike Pence to um, overturn the election uh, without uh, his having to resort to the violence that he had to resort to when Pence uh, stood up for the Constitution. Uh, so but my point is that mission accomplished for the commission, the American people now um, have the evidence. Majorities now believe that Trump um, is responsible and the baton gets passed to Merrick Garland at the Justice Department in terms of um, a, a future indictment. But there appear to be two tracks at the Justice Department, one through the special master who looks like he's looking at obstruction of justice and interference with a government process. I can't remember the exact term. And then you've got the other DOJ track, which is in secret, which is looking into these classified documents. And now we're learning from the Washington Post that some of the classified documents that literally Trump stole government property, uh, in this case, highly classified documents involving Iran's nuclear program and U.S. spying assets in China, which already could be rolled up. So we don't know the cost to the country's national security, but it looks extraordinary at this point. Uh, and they still, FBI apparently still thinks there's a whole bunch of documents out there that Trump's still holding on to, it, perhaps at Bedminster or yeah. Trump Tower or with his uh, kids, you know, Don Jr. and company. They just don't know. Uh, the, the, the special master is a speed bump, in my view. The immediate track, as you put it, that the Justice Department is on has to do with the stolen documents. It's my strong sense that Merrick Garland, who was a law school classmate of mine, who's a very smart guy, um, is very likely to indict Trump uh, sometime soon after the midterm elections on that uh, confined case. That needs to happen quickly if there's to be any chance of a trial before January 2025. And there's the possibility of the attorney general being replaced should a Republican win that election. Um, the, the delay strategy uh, that Trump will employ will be to try to prevent a trial from happening before that. 
and so my my view is that Garland should indict Trump on the obstruction that you mentioned, uh, on the theft of government documents, including highly classified national security secrets, and should proceed with that case, which is sure to be almost ready. And uh, if the larger case, which is his role in the insurrection, that's probably not yet ready. Uh, that may need to wait. Well, since you know Merrick Garland, uh, Dennis Aftergat, my sense is that he didn't want this case and that it's a real hot potato, but that maybe what's going on is that it's one thing to indict Donald Trump. It's another thing to put him on trial and convict him. Is that a problem? Because any jury in this country, given how polarized and how divided this country is, out of 12, you could assume that four of the 12 could be Trumpsters, given the demographic breakdown of the support for Trump. When you, you were saying earlier that the majority of American people have, got, have learned from the January 6th committee about Trump's crimes, but a lot of the country doesn't believe it. Well, you put your finger on a very uh, important point, but you need to bear in mind that the uh, venue for a trial is almost certain to be Washington, D.C. And it's probably fair to say, Ian, that that is a jurisdiction where the danger you describe that would exist almost anywhere else in the country um, is at least minimized. And it's the danger of what we call jury nullification. Um, I don't care what the evidence is. Some juror says, I believe in the defendant and I'm not going to vote to convict him. Well, that's least likely to exist in Washington, D.C. Um, it's the place where the fairest trial in the country can probably happen because jurors there also tend to um, give credence to the burden of proof that prosecutors bear, the very difficult burden of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. But the likelihood of there being a lot of jury uh, nullifiers on a D.C. jury is small. But there is a precedent, of course, in terms of presidents testifying before Congress, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, Herbert Hoover, Harry Truman, and Gerald Ford. In Harry Truman's case, I think he was a former president and he refused to testify before the House of Un-American Activities. Is Trump going to cite that? I mean, in other words, when do you think, given Trump's delaying tactics, when do you think there could actually be, if there's an indictment after the election, how long before there's a trial, let alone a conviction? Uh, well, Ian, uh we have to go back to the two tracks. Um, one track is the congressional hearing. That's where the subpoena has been. Right. And that's not a trial. That's, uh, that's a hearing before the congressional committee to try to gather evidence um, uh, and determine, get to the bottom of what happened on January 6th. The other track is the, uh, is the indictment. On the first track, Trump doesn't need to do much to stall for, and for the committee's mandate to run out, assuming that the Republicans take over the House. The other track has nothing to do with the House committee. Uh, Merrick Garland will be the Attorney General of the United States after uh, the midterms, and presumably uh, at least until January 2025. 
so you know that 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 process, the judicial process, the prosecution process, is uh, almost sure to proceed. So, just in closing, either way, it seems to me. I mean, I cover national security affairs, and I've always focused on the fact that Trump has been the perfect instrument of division, which is actually Vladimir Putin's ultimate strategy. I mean, in 2016, when he interfered in the elections to help elect Trump and hurt Hillary Clinton, his plan B was that, as he expected and everybody else expected, Hillary would have won. Trump would have gone around the country leading rallies of lock her up, lock her up, and diminished her ability to govern, and therefore diminish and divide America. And that's our greatest vulnerability, it seems, that we're a country that's turning against each other, and that Trump has been the main instrument of division. So my sense is that no matter what happens here, this country is going to be torn apart by this one man, and I find that absolutely extraordinary. It, it has been torn apart, just as you say, Ian. I don't know the answer to that. What I do know, Ian, is that if the rule of law is going to survive, if there's any chance to reunite us as a country under a constitutional uh, system, there needs to be accountability for the man who, who caused, who incited, who attempted to overturn the Constitution, the 2020 election, there needs to be accountability. There are crimes that have occurred and there need to be consequences, just as with Steve Bannon on Friday getting sentenced to four months in jail, there were consequences for someone who thumbs their nose at the law. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you joining us here today, Dennis Aftergaard. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Dennis Aftergat, who is a former federal prosecutor and chief assistant city attorney in San Francisco, who has won cases of significance in the United States Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court. He currently focuses on affirmative litigation and defending cases involving civil rights and democratic norms under attack. And he has an article at NBC News, Special Counsel John Durham's Failure Belongs to William Barr, and another article at Slate, Why the Bannon Prison Sentence and Trump's January the 6th Subpoena Matters. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the Senate race in Ohio, which is in many ways a referendum on the direction the Democratic Party has taken in recent decades away from support for unions and working Americans, particularly in the industrial Midwest. Tell it to the judge on Sunday. Tell it to him, leave me alone. Tell it to the judge on Sunday.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Alec McGillis, who covers politics and government at ProPublica. He previously reported for the New Republic, the Washington Post, and the Baltimore Sun, and is the author of Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. And he has an article at the New York Times, Tim Ryan is Winning the War for the Soul of the Democratic Party. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alec McGillis. Thank you. Thank you. So... In a way, Alec, it's kind of, is it the lost soul of the Democratic Party since the Democrats have lost so many white working class Americans who are so angry and who Trump has picked off in 2016 and still appears to have as his base support? Yes. I mean, I'm not sure if it's necessarily the soul of the party that they've lost, but it's a huge problem that they've lost these voters. And it's just really hard to see how you can sustain a political party without this this part of their their coalition. It's not just about the presidential race, of course, it's also about the Senate. I mean, one of the, the huge problems for the Democrats, long-term problem, is that the Senate is so weighted toward smaller, more rural states. And if you're getting killed among white voters without college degrees, as the party has been um, over the last decade, it's really hard to see how you can build a sustainable um, majority in the Senate. And so you have someone like Tim Ryan who comes along and says that this is a real problem and and we need to we need to really focus on this um, at a time when many others in the National Democratic Party have really been making the argument that they can that they can somehow get by without a lot of these voters and that's sort of what's at the crux of of this this whole this whole story and this whole debate but in a paradoxical way the race for the Senate between J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan is kind of flips the whole Trump MAGA world on its head in the sense that you could make the case that J.D. Vance is what uh, the Trumpsters rail against, a wealthy, elitist, educated guy compared to Tim Ryan, who is a white working class man of the people. Well, I'm not sure I'll go that far because J.D. Vance is credentials um, as a as a son of Ohio, working class Ohio, are are quite strong. He he grew up under very very difficult circumstances in this former steel town of Middletown in so- Southwest Ohio. Um, you know, descended from Appalachians who had moved to the area uh, decades ago, and and he of course did go on to great success both as a working for Peter Thiel's venture capital firm in Silicon Valley. And also then then sell, writing this hugely successful best-selling memoir that became a became a movie, um, and and yes he did um, get a degree at Yale Law, but he but he very much is uh, is from the working class Ohio that has been struggling so much in recent years. The the real what makes the what makes the race so interesting from a Trumpist perspective is really the fact that J D Vance had been so harshly criticizing Trump back in 2016. Um, one of the things that made Vance in the book very appealing to a lot of people on the left um, and helped the book sell so well was that he was sort of explaining to you why why so much of America, so many people in the Midwest were, were susceptible to someone like Trump um, in his memoir. And he was also quite critical of Trump in his public comments at the time. I remember going to an event right after the election, after the 2016 election, where Vance was on stage with Bill Kristol, who was sort of the, you know, the king of the, of the never-Trump conservatives, 
and and there they were sort of you know riffing on against trump and 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 the all the voters who have been so gullible as to vote for him and and so the, the fact that he's now made this extraordinary um pivot to become um a you know a very much a trumpist to to win his endorsement last spring in the primary is is really remarkable and is and, and it is in a sense the defining sort of fact of of the race well that was crystallized wasn't it in the debate where tim ryan said i want to be a, an ass kicker for uh, ohio whereas jd vance is an ass licker right there was this he what that was um reference to was an really incredible moment um in a recent rally in in ohio trump came out to campaign with vance right in tim ryan's um home district in, in youngstown and and they were on stage there in the arena and and trump by way of trying to reassure all these uh trump fans in the arena that jd vance was now um sincere in his in his affections for trump he he started talking about how much vance had been how how eagerly he'd been kissing his ass um using those exact words um and it was really a a humiliating moment for for Vance, and he just stood there, you know, basically taking it because he feels like he has to. So, where do we stand now? I just was looking at the article the other day in the in the Washington Post that indicated that the polls are shifting in Republicans' favor; that they not just could pick up the House, but they could also even pick up the Senate. We know that Mitch McConnell's had to pour money into this race, apparently he wasn't too happy with Peter Thiel, saying, yeah, more or less, you're, this is your hand-picked candidate, why can't you pony up? But the Republicans had to put in $28 million, right? So That's right. And at, but at, the same, but at the same time, what's really kind of striking is that the Democrats, the National Democrats, have chosen not to support Tim Ryan in any significant way. He's, he's had a well-funded campaign, but it's really all thanks to his own, his own quite impressive fundraising. Um, that the National Party has apparently decided that that his odds, even even running a, a quite adept campaign, his odds are too long in a state that Trump has won uh, eight points by eight points twice in a row. They've essentially sort of written off Ohio and and are instead spending heavily on races in uh, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and elsewhere. Despite the fact that those the their candidates in those states. To, are not exceeding expectations to the extent that Tim Ryan has been. Um, there's definitely still, for all of Ryan's success in in outperforming expectations in Ohio, there seems to be a sense among national Democrats that he's still somewhat um, not um, not not the direction that they want to go in. I mean, he's been, um, you know, because he's been challenging the party over the years um, for. for for as he would say it, you know, focusing too much on social issues at the expense of economic ones. Um, there's definitely still some reservations about him, um, despite the fact that he is running what what many you know people in Ohio agree is one of the best campaigns that they've seen there in a long time. Yeah, well, you just made the point that the contrast between Tim Ryan's feisty performance as an underdog, which the Democrats aren't funding, compared to Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin, who was chosen by the progressives in Wisconsin to run when there were some really good, more centrist candidates who would be less vulnerable to racist Republican attacks that have driven down Mandela Barnes' numbers. But Mandela Barnes, of course, came out of the gate with the worst political ads probably in American political history. 
So he's not proving to be a particularly good candidate. But how much is there, there vestiges of in the Democratic establishment? I mean, not only has Tim Ryan taken on Nancy Pelosi, challenged her leadership, but he's also basically gone against the whole Clinton neoliberal legacy, hasn't he? You know, Clinton, as you point out in your article, signed NAFTA in 1993, ushered China into the World Trade Organization in 2000. And what happened to Youngstown as a result was that the town was ravaged, and by 2010, the population of Youngstown had fallen 60% from its 1930 peak. That's right, and, and he was... He was, along with a few others, uh, House Democrats from the Midwest, in those years, he was pointing out just how devastating these these policies had been, the uh, the NAFTA, and then and then um, letting China into the World Trade Organization in 2000, which a lot of economists now think was even it was really the real crucial event and just incredibly devastating to manufacturing communities around the country that suffered just by far the the, the most concentrated consequences from from the transformations that followed that. And, and Ryan was, has been talking about this for years. What's, so, what's interesting about this moment now is that the Democrats seem to be getting this at a policy level. They, um, you know, there's been this real shift in the party in the last year or two toward, um, towards, towards supporting the kind of industrial policy um, measures that, that Ryan and others have been arguing for, um, you know, really a more sort of um, forceful government intervention to to support American manufacturing, to support manufacturing communities um, in the form of, for, well, for one thing, that the big bill they passed a few months ago to support American computer chip industry, um, realizing that we can't have that supply chain all sitting over over in China. Um, so that that was a very um, forceful measure in that direction. And then, and that's going to lead to the the construction of two huge computer chip plants in the Columbus suburbs, and then, and then even more, you know, significantly, the this the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, so-called, um, passed a few months ago, which has all sorts of uh, major uh, boosts for for green energy. That's going to make a big difference in um, electric electric vehicle um, construction in the date uh, in the Youngstown area, solar industry in the Toledo area, um, all these different parts of the Midwest that are going to see benefits from this very kind of really, you know, quite direct industrial policy kind of approach that the de- Democrats are now belatedly taken, taking after years of sort of um, writing that kind of stuff off. What's what's odd is that they're not accompanying that that kind of policy shift with a, po- a political recognition that someone like Tim Ryan might really be onto something and should be supported to the greatest extent possible. Well, you, Tim Ryan is being vindicated, isn't he, by the reindustrialization, the recognition from COVID of how vulnerable we are on supply chain. So, you, you would think that the American people get that. I think they do, and I think that that's why that's one reason I, I would say that he's outperforming expectations in Ohio, and it's and it's the it's a reason why the the party again on a on a policy level has has made this shift because they they see that that the mistakes in their in the previous um, you know what you call neoliberal approach um, of just of just going kind of uh, throwing everything over to the to the forces of globalization and 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 free trade that's not really so free. So they've recognized that at, at a kind of policy level, but but there still seems to be a reluctance to really um, to really em- embrace this politically to the extent that that you're you're making someone like Tim Ryan a real a real kind of 
public champion of, of the party message. Uh, for some reason, there's still a, a, a reluctance to to recognize that that he he's the sort of person that you need more of in places like the Midwest. Well, you quote your conversation with him, with Tim Ryan, where he says, we were always supposed to be the party of working people. And so those rank-and-file union members kept getting crushed and jobs kept leaving and their unions and the Democrats weren't able to do anything for them. And he started out as an aide staff member to former Congressman James Traficant, who I used to interview years ago. Very, I must say, he was very entertaining. Yes. But he did, of course, end up serving seven years in prison. And then Tim Ryan won his Traficant seat at the age of 29, so just describe this man that you know for our audience. He's really what makes Tim Ryan so interesting is that while he has on the one hand this persona of the Youngstown industrial town Democrat with, you know, his father his both his great grandfather and his grandfather worked in the steel mills and he um Tim Ryan played football in high school and was recruited to to play at Youngstown State before a um an injury cut short his his quarterback career and he ended up transferring elsewhere for college um, to Bowling Green. But so he has this kind of, you know, from the distance, it seems like it would be this more a, kind of a gruffer um, uh, sort of old school Democrat profile. But in fact, in person and in his actual kind of makeup, he's this incredibly, um, actually very mild mannered, uh, almost gentle kind of guy. He um, He is a huge believer in uh, in mindfulness practice and and practicer of yoga to the point that he's he wrote a whole book about it. I, I when on my drive over to 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 interview him, I listened to this his book and it's this whole long book about how much he has gained from mindfulness practices and how much he believes that America would would benefit from from all of us doing more of that. Um, and so it's, he's really not he, he's he's more complicated uh, close up than you might expect. He he reminds me a little bit of. Um, best way to describe him might be that he comes across as a really comes across as a high school football coach who you know, he definitely has that bearing of the kind of um, the, the the high school coach athletic coach but the sort of guy who who is not actually going to get that upset over a loss um, you know he wants to win but he's still going to be the guy the kind of coach who's going to be who's going to keep things in perspective try to be positive after the game who might even be able to sort of hang out with the the faculty in the faculty lounge because he's you know you know learned and erudite enough that he can kind of get by in that context as well. He's he's really interesting in that in that sense. He has he's able to kind of um, kind of travel in both sorts of circles. And and Vance, of course, J.D. Vance would look, looks at this and says basically that he's a phony. That his whole his whole populist um, steel town shtick is is phony because what he really likes doing is is spending his time with coastal types doing yoga um, so that that would be the more that would be the more kind of cynical way of looking at it right but he sure doesn't sound like you know that he spends his time at Esalon and in big so you know he sounds he doesn't like a... but he does like to talk about um, he, he does like to talk about uh, he talks a lot about grace and love and forgiveness. He has this a real kind of, um, you know, just kind of a, um, I guess you could call it kind of a, a liberal Christian rhetoric that comes very easily to him. And it's, I, and I saw him at this one um, quite sort of 
sharp confrontation at an event outside Columbus where um, it, was, it was an event for um, that some local Asian American organizations had organized uh, after Ryan had gotten some hot water from them for having run this ad against anti-China ad, anti-China, you know, trade ad that that some Asian American groups found a little bit too anti-Asian in its overtone. So we had this event with to, to essentially kind of make up with these organizations and. Um, and he was, it was really interesting watching him stand, both standing by the message of the ad, which is that China's a real problem and that we need to have, do more to confront China, um, while at the same time saying, I do not attend any kind of despair, any kind of hate with this ad. My, I am only full of love. I'm only full of love for you. So it was this really, really weird combo of, of, a, of kind of a soft, a soft rhetoric combined with a quite tough economic message. Mm-hmm. Well, Trump himself is guilty. Uh, many people are. You've got to be careful, even as a reporter. You can't blame the Russian people for Putin, and you can't blame the Chinese people for Xi Jinping. There's a distinction between the Chinese people and the Chinese Communist government. Exactly, and that's that's what this was the distinction he was trying to draw in this moment with these with these folks at the at the meeting. So, just in closing, uh, then Alec McGillis, is there a chance that the Democrats can? You know, go back to their roots in a way when they had white working class voters in their, within their ranks for decades until basically, I guess up until about the Clinton era. And apparently one of the reasons that the Democrats moved to ask to get money from Wall Street as opposed to the unions was that the unions simply didn't have the money. They couldn't compete. That's hardly an excuse, but that's what I understand was a part of the mix here. But when when you've got people like Tim Ryan and Marcy Kaptur and also Sherrod Brown, they seem to be a, a model that the Democrats ought to follow and find more people like that. Is that a fair criticism? No, it's that's absolutely a fair point, and that's and they are a model. And and you know the thing to keep in mind is that the Democrats don't have to win all of these voters; they just have to win some of them. Um, the reason that Barack Obama won twice, won Ohio twice, is that he won enough of these voters to win. And you just can't get completely obliterated among them. And that's what's been happening. That's what happened to the Democrats in 2016. But So all you have to do is improve at the margins. And one reason that Joe Biden won in 2020 is that he did somewhat better with, um, with non-white voters without college degrees than Hillary Clinton had. Um, the reason that Sherrod Brown can still you know, won a couple of times in Ohio, is that he was able to do that, although he's going to have a tough re-election in two years himself. Um, and, and then Tim Ryan is, is, is going to do somewhat better with these voters than, than others have. So it's not, a, it's not, you know, no one's saying that the Democrats have to throw everything over for these voters. I know a lot of, um, you know, folks in, elsewhere in the party coalition get really tired about hearing about these 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 non-college white voters and everything we have to do to get them back. The fact is, though, if you get obliterated with them, you're going to lose. You just are. There's no way the math works. You're, you're certainly going to lose the Senate year after year. And, and so there's not really, an, you don't really have a choice. You have to try to, to get at least some of them back. Well, Alec McGillis, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Alec McGillis, who covers politics and government for ProPublica. He previously reported for The New Republic, The Washington Post, The Baltimore Sun, and is the author of Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. And he has an article at The New York Times, Tim Ryan is Winning the War for the Soul of the Democratic Party.
We're going to take a brief station break and back looking further into our political divide and assess the role of education in this country in which the Democrats are now losing non-college educated whites by a two-to-one margin while securing 60% of the college educated vote. Deputy sheriffs, the soldiers, the governors get paid And the marshals and cops get the same But the poor white man's used in the hands of them all like a tool He's taught in his school From the start by the rule That the laws are with him To protect his white skin to keep up his heat so he never thinks straight about the shape that he's in. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Eric Levitz, who writes for New York Magazine's Daily Intelligencer, where his latest article is How the Diploma Divide is Remaking American Politics. Education is at the heart of this country's many divisions. Welcome to Background Briefing, Eric Levitz. Thanks for having me. So, Eric, there's no question that the country is divided, and Donald Trump, in many ways, is the, probably the greatest instrument of division, although there were existing tensions before him, but he's exploited and uh, exacerbated them. And, of course, on the campaign trail in 2016, he famously said to a, a crowd at a rally, I love the poorly educated. So can you make the case that this country is sort of politically divided between the educated and the undereducated. Yeah, so there's obviously a lot of divisions in the United States uh, that are really well known in our politics, right? Like, you know, there's very famously, you know, we have an African American population that votes nearly 90% for one party, and we have a, a white population that. Uh, votes, you know, maybe on the order of, I've got to look, but, you know, close to 60% at least, right, for the other parties. So we have, you know, significant racial divisions. We have a gender gap in voting. We have lots of divisions, but but one I think that is less well appreciated historically and is, is increasingly gaining notice as it's gotten bigger is this education-based divide, where increasingly elections divide voters who have college degrees from those without. Um, and in a flip of what was the historical pattern in the mid 20th century, voters with higher levels of education um, are voting for left of center parties. Um, whereas in 1950, if you had a college degree, you were more likely to vote for the Republicans, you know, partially because we had a politics that was much more bifurcated along lines of class where voters of relatively greater material privilege, um, which college graduates generally are more economically secure were voting for the right, um, while less secure voters were voting for the left. And this was true not only in, in the United States, but across Western Europe. And we've seen uh, across all of these countries, 
um, almost every Western democracy, an inversion of this trend over the past 50 years, where uh, now the higher educated are voting for Democrats. And it's actually more pronounced in the United States than almost anywhere else in the last two elections. Um, this trend has been going on for a long time, gradually shifting. But uh, as you suggest, Donald Trump really accelerated it so that in 2016 and 2020, for the first time you know, in recorded history, uh, for when we have this data in the American National Election Survey, found that the, among white voters and among the, America's white majority, um, the poor voted to the right of the, the rich. The top 5% richest white voters were more democratic than the poorest uh, 33%, um, the, the poorest third of voters. Um, and this was largely a result of a major flip in uh, how highly educated whites were voting. Um, so highly educated whites moved towards the Democrats and less educated ones moved towards the Republicans. Well, in our previous um, interview, we talked about uh, the race in Ohio between Tim Ryan and J.D. Vance, which is in many ways has brought up this division. And, and of course, Tim Ryan is as a working-class Democrat representing Youngstown is trying to win back the working-class white voters that have become uh, MAGA voters. But you start out your article how the diploma divide is remaking American politics. Education is at the heart of the country's many divisions. You say that John F. Kennedy lost college-educated voters by two-to-one margin, yet he won the presidency thanks to the overwhelming support among white voters with a degree. Sixty years later, our second Catholic president charted a much different path to the White House, losing non-college-educated whites by a two-to-one margin while securing 60% of the college-educated vote. And in the latest New York Times-Siena poll of the 2020 midterm show, this patent-holding firm, the Democrats winning 55% of voters with bachelor's degree, but only 39% of those without. So I'm reminded, Eric, of what happened after World War II when all of those millions of vets came home to a country that had a wartime economy that had to shift to a peacetime economy. And I think one of the the greatest pieces of legislation in American history in many ways was the GI Bill that allowed so many of these returning servicemen to get a college education, get subsidized by the government, to go to college, which they normally wouldn't have done. And in many ways, this helped build the American middle class and and boost the ranks of the educated. So why can't we do that again? In other words, why vilify and look down on less educated people? Why not make education a virtue? Yeah, well, so I think that that, for a long time, the Democratic Party's answer to sort of this this fundamental problem economically that has affected, again, like all Western democracies, is that we had a model of shared prosperity in the post-World War II era that allowed voters without college degrees, um, especially specifically, you know, generally white male vote uh, workers, you know, to earn a really comfortable standard of living and, and, you know, more specifically to enjoy steady gains in living standards um, through blue collar work. And uh, as automation and globalization, these, these long-term economic processes proceeded, 
um, the economic leverage, the bargaining power of industrial workers in the West was eroded. And for a long time, the Democrats' answer for how to reestablish shared prosperity in light of this was to make education more accessible, to have people update their skills for the knowledge economy, sort of with this analogy to the way that um, industrialization in its early stages displaced all these agricultural workers, right? As, as agriculture became more mechanized and more efficient, a lot of small farmers lost their livelihoods. Um, but ultimately, those populations were able to eventually enjoy better living standards by updating their skills for the industrial era, developing, you know, machine operating skills and, and factory skills, and then getting wages through that. So the analogy would be that now uh, displaced industrial workers just need to learn to code, they need to go to college, they need to get the skills that are demanded of our economy, uh, our knowledge economy in this era. Uh, unfortunately, that isn't actually a viable prescription because the industries of the high-tech knowledge economy just aren't as labor-intensive as factories um, were in the, in the mid-20th century. And so there just aren't, there aren't jobs for everybody um, in that realm. While at the same time, we need nurses' aides. We need warehouse workers. We need a lot of the occupations that are growing fastest in the United States are ones that don't require a college degree. And so we, we need these jobs to be performed. And so if, if we're going to have workers doing that work, then there is no way to establish shared prosperity without making it possible for people without degrees to earn a good living, um, even if they don't pursue education, higher education. So do we want to make higher education more affordable for people? Absolutely, as, a, as an end in itself, that, that, is, that is useful. And definitely we could use, you know, some more people gaining the skills necessary for the high-tech economy. But at the same time, we also need people to do work that doesn't require um, a college education. And we need to be able to make it so that they can earn a decent living or else we're going to have a really unequal society. Well, but they don't make a decent living. There's been a battle to get the $15 hour pay for workers. And Amazon, of course, is exactly the description of what you're talking about. And if people were more educated, would they want to work at Amazon? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, although we are seeing a little bit um, of a situation where the, some of the labor organizing that's happened this year has actually come from people who got college degrees um, but were unable to get jobs in the field that they had uh, hoped for um, and ended up, uh, you know, uh, working at Starbucks and then from that position uh, organized their shops, organized working class people without degrees uh, to demand more um, from their bosses. And so there is a way in which, um, you know, we just right now are not finding work that requires the qualifications that all college educated people have. At the same time, that experience of getting a college education, um, as you perhaps suggest, uh, makes people feel a little bit more independent and more entitled to demand more in their workplaces. And so we're seeing some labor militancy filter down as college-educated people are are ending up shunted into places like Amazon and Starbucks. Well, it does seem, though, that in a political analysis of the situation we have now, that 
Trump is able to use anger and bitterness to mobilize his MAGA base. In fact, the entire Republican Party have become a party of trolls. They're running on culture war issues that have nothing to do with bread and butter issues that you'd think most people would be interested in. So why is that working? Yeah, so I I think that, um, you know, there are a few answers to that. One thing I focus on in my piece is that um, we do see that there are distinct cultural and values uh, tendencies um, between college-educated and non-college-educated people. So there's a large body of political science um, that is found, you know, really starting in the 1950s when they analyzed uh, survey data that voters with college degrees tended to have more left-wing views on gender roles, on civil liberties, the rights of racial minorities, immigration, etc. Um, and we see that as the college-educated population increased over the 20th century, um, these issues became more prominent in our politics because there was a larger mass constituency for the liberal position on these issues, whereas previously both major parties kind of marginalized them out of an awareness uh, that, that they could potentially create divisions within their coalitions. So there is an extent to which there is this cultural division between the college educated and non-college educated and educated professionals have secured steadily greater influence over the Democratic Party um, as trade unions have kind of uh, declined and as other mass membership institutions that are accountable to working class constituencies have eroded the civic society organizations that really shape the Democratic Party's governance are increasingly nonprofits, think tanks, advocacy organizations that are staffed primarily by college-educated liberals. Um, and so this creates, you know, some cultural distinction, which provides an opportunity to the Republican Party. Now, the Republican Party, the conservative movement, is, is so extreme on a lot of issues, including abortion, that uh, cultural issues can actually create some problems for them. And I think some of their success in the current midterm is actually from bread and butter concerns. They don't have a plan for tackling inflation that makes any sense. Um, but nonetheless, voters are upset about inflation and Democrats are the party in power, Republicans are the opposition. So they're capitalizing a little bit on on voters just looking for a vehicle to vent their frustration about inflation. But they are also making hay on, on cultural issues um, as well as uh, concerns about crime. So in your article, just in closing here, Eric uh, Levitz, you say, why has the population of social liberals increased in tandem with that of college graduates? And you, you've answered that. But the other side of the question is, why <laughs> why have the Republicans become the party of angry white working people? And why do they pander to bitterness? And at the same time, they're led by a wannabe plutocrat, and they're financed by plutocrats. So it's a very cynical situation, isn't it, where you've got a party where the plutocrats are financing and encouraging this roiling anger amongst the white working people that they don't give a damn about and they're not really helping, but they're absolutely clever at being able to blame everything on the Democrats. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, they're they're doing it because it, it, it works uh, fairly well. Um, you know, 
we, we have a, a lot of grievance and frustration in the society and the right wing cultural narratives are really easy for people to they, they appeal to instincts that are um, you know fairly strong and intuitive and, and they offer very kind of simple stories for why things aren't going so well economically in a lot of regions of the country, um, you know, that are a lot easier to understand and identify with than sort of potentially technical economic arguments. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it keeps politics centered on issues that that are less threatening to the, the funders of the party. Um, so it, it, it's a, you know, it, it's a recipe that they uh, stick to because it's uh, it works fairly well. Well, Eric Levitz, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Yep, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Eric Levitz, who writes for New York Magazine's Daily Intelligencer, where his latest article is How the Diploma Divide is Remaking American Politics. Education is at the heart of this country's many divisions. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Teacher and the other became